It's the TEH Podcast, episode 83. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com, along with Gary Rosenzweig from MacMost.com. This week, our guests, well, our guest is Randy Cassingham of ThisIsTrue.com. I've been now, demoted. You've been demoted, and that actually, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great segue into that we've made some change. First of all, uh, we know we have at least one listener. Yay. Uh, because we had one person ask us if and when we were coming back. Uh, we're coming back. Uh, by the time you hear this, we are back. We could send a uh, copy of this podcast to them on a cassette tape in the mail. There we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, but they won't be able to play it. Actually, yeah. our last episode had more than 900 downloads. So we actually have more than one listener. Or that one listener really, really liked to download that episode. <laughs> um, so we, we took an opportunity during our, what I'll go ahead and call our hiatus, uh, to rethink a little bit about what made the podcast fun for us, you know, what made us be, you know, feel interested in, in actually showing up and doing this each week. What was the hard part? The parts that acted as kind of a, a disincentive, the stuff that, that the unfun, yeah, the, the stuff that none of us wanted to do, uh, and so we've we've basically rejiggered things a little bit, and uh, hopefully uh, we're going to um, have a little bit more fun doing this each week, put a little bit more enthusiasm into the tech enthusiast hour, uh, <laughs> and um, I've handed off. Um, a lot of the, uh, I'll just go ahead and call it grunt work, to um, my assistant, who will actually handle the mechanics of putting out the podcast. Our, my assistant should have a name. Her name is Connie. She's been with me for a really long time, and and she's also... Uh, did, you, did you just give her a name? Or did she have one before? It sounded like you just... I just gave her a name. Gave her Coincidentally, a name. it was the same name she already had. Oh, that, oh, that, that works out. fun. Yeah. <laughs> Um, she's also, of, uh, I think Randy, you probably know this, Gary, you don't, that she is actually the person who's been driving the, doing the, the primary force behind driving heroic stories for the last, I don't know, two, three years, um, as it's been republishing its older, um, you know, backlog of, of archived stories. She's been the one who's been turning the crank on that every week. So she's, uh, she's you know, been with me a lot of listeners have no idea what heroic stories is. Heroic stories. Um, Heroic stories is stories of people just being good. Uh, we, we've, I've been doing Not All News is Bad for a couple of years because in recent years, it seems like we needed a daily antidote to all the bad news. Heroic stories, you started that, Randy, back in what? 99? Oh, was that 99? It may have been. It was a long time ago. It was a really long time ago. And then, um, and then I spun it out to a different publisher and she died. She died. How dare she? <laughs> um, and so we basically brought it back in-house, where in-house means between Randy and myself. And I ended up taking it over. It's actually running on um, Ask Leo servers. And uh, you know, like I said, Connie's my assistant. And uh, we've been publishing those twice a week now for, gosh, I think it's coming up on three or four years since we took it over again. Um, but anyway, she's been doing that. So she knows the deal. She's, she understands the websites and the audios and the podcasts and the bits and the bites and, and, and the Leos. She knows you know, how, to, how to make That's the hard part. That's the hardest part of all, trust me. Um, so anyway, so basically we've offloaded some of the stuff that we don't enjoy doing to someone who does and who does it well. And we're going to focus on showing up here every week, uh, recording an hour or so of audio 
and uh, having fun with it. Now, we did. I did say an hour or so. One of the things that we're going to be a little bit more lax about is exactly how long the episodes last. They're going to last as long as they last. Um, that could be, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes. It could even be an hour. Uh, it could be longer, depending on, on what we're talking about, how we're feeling, and how things are going. So um, I wanted to say it's the tech enthusiast hour-ish. Uh, with emphasis Yeah, except that what I, what I did when I jiggered the website a little bit is I just renamed it to TEH Podcast. Right. And, and it doesn't say that, tech enthusiast hour anymore. Right. And it, it's... it's um, uh, gosh, more so, so many companies have done that where they've actually just KFC is not mm-hmm. KFC, yeah. right? We are now the KFC of podcasts. Um, the uh, not not so greasy, <laughs> extra crispy. <laughs> the um, uh, but you know those, especially the listeners who've been with us for a couple of years, um, all one of them is uh, you know know that this was originally the Tech Enthusiast Hour. That's where T E H comes from. So now it's you know. To the extent we ever talk about Tech Enthusiast Hour, it's Tech Enthusiast Hour-ish. The other thing, and Randy alluded to this by saying he's been demoted, um, he's been demoted. We're focusing on uh, a couple of hosts, Gary and myself, uh, Randy, of course, and Kevin, who is, of course, not with us this week. Um, we'll still show up occasionally as guests, as will hopefully other folks that we know and love and invite to enjoy uh, to join us on the podcast. But it's basically Gary and myself who are going to uh, mm-hmm. you know, make the commitment to try and show up every week and do that. One of the hard parts that we discovered, uh, heck, just in making today's recording is that scheduling is really, really hard. Um, And it becomes exponentially harder the more people you're trying to schedule. Uh, And I think that was one of the things that got in our way occasionally. Uh, And I've been so slammed anyway that, you know, I actually didn't have this foisted upon me. I I just basically said I can't do it every week. So, um, yeah, I'll still be the publisher, but I'm just not going to be here every week. Right, right. And, and at some point, I mean, I probably won't do it this week, but at some point we'll talk about, you know, sponsored by um, in the discussions leading up to um, the change and this in today's episode. We talked a little bit about, you know, who's sponsoring it. Well, heck, you know, we've in the past, we haven't talked about sponsors because we're sponsoring it. You know, um, uh, the, the website exists on a thisistrue.com server. Uh, you know, I'm taking my time and paying for Connie out of the AskLeo.com budget. Uh, Gary is paying for the recording stuff and such out of presumably the Mac most budget. I mean, everybody's contributing something. So in a lot, in a lot of ways, um, and we probably will end up being a little bit more explicit about this occasionally in the future, is that, you know, TEH podcast is sponsored by AskLeo.com, ThisIsTrue.com, MacMost.com, and FreePrintable.net, uh, you know, who is, uh, you know, Kevin, which is Kevin's main business or fax zero. Pick, take your pick. Um, so uh, in that sense, uh, you may hear a little bit more of us being a little bit more blatant about self-promoting some of our stuff. We'll be keeping it topical and interesting, of course. Uh, we're not going to start to, you know, I'm certainly not going to start throwing things that don't apply to you. We won't be talking about Windows XP, for example. But um, we uh, we will be saying, you know, hey, you should go check out this kind of stuff on our website or here's something that's cool that, that just happened for uh, for Randy's stuff and so forth and so on. So anyway, that's kind of, did I miss anything, guys, about, about where, we're, where we're at and what we're doing? No, I think that uh, sums it up. Yeah, I think that works. Okay. Um, so 
one of the uh, approaches that we're going to take is each week, uh, Ran, or Gary and I and our guest will come in with uh, you know, one primary uh, topic or story, if you will. Mine is, uh, I, hopefully this will make it through to the headline. I, it, it is one of those cases where, my gosh, hell really has frozen over. Mm-hmm. Microsoft Edge is actually good. And honestly, that's not something I would have said four years ago. Uh, believe it or not, Windows 10 has been out for over four years. Uh, Microsoft, wow. Microsoft Edge was part of that initial rollout. Um, Edge received a deservedly lukewarm to poor reception for any number of different reasons, uh, both marketing and technical. So, so the original thing was, you know, they had Internet Explorer for all those years. Right. And they decided to abandon that browser, start a new one called Edge. Right. And now we're several versions into Edge. Is that right? We're, well, we're four years into, into, into Edge, whatever, whatever that means from that, from a software, it's software development perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, did it, did it start with entirely new code base? Was it um, a, yes, Edge was a evolution ground, of IE? What? Edge, Edge was primarily a ground up rewrite of a, of a web browser. I believe, I mean, I'm sure that they stole some code from internally from, you know, Internet Explorer or whatever else they may have had lying around in terms of web browsing technology. But fundamentally, it was a brand new from the ground up browser. And it kind of showed that when it released because it wasn't really feature complete. A lot of the things that people counted on weren't in Edge. Uh, most notably, it didn't have a plug-in model. So you couldn't like plug in your favorite password manager or you couldn't add, you know, you couldn't add in uh, whatever other add-ins you're used to using with a web browser. That's on the technical side. On the, I'll just politely call it marketing side, Microsoft initially took a very hardline approach and pushed Edge basically in your face. If you were running Windows 10, it was really hard not to run Edge, either as your default browser or accidentally when you're doing something else, like using Cortana, because while you can set a different default browser in the operating system, Cortana would very helpfully, so to speak, uh, sidestep that and use Edge anyway. So um, a very long story short, they've basically made a number of amazing changes to how they're approaching the web browser business. The biggest one is that Edge is, again, a completely new browser, or it will be. It's not currently automatically being downloaded, but you can get it yourself um, from Microsoft, and of course, there'll be a link in the show notes, that uh, you can download this new version of Edge. And the interesting thing about this new version of Edge is that it is based on Chromium. Chromium Which is means the, it's not really completely new then. It's exactly. It is. <laughs> and so I've been using this. I've been using Edge now for two weeks. Or for, I'm sorry, for about a week. And within a couple of hours, I just said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and set this as my default browser. And I've been using it as my default browser ever since. Um, and it, and the reason I've been using it as my default browser is it's Chrome. It's really just Chrome with a different coat on. Okay. Um, and, and is, what's the difference between Chrome and Chromium? So Chromium is essentially the innards, the, the rendering engine 
the stuff that transforms the HTML that it gets in a web page and into what you actually see on the screen. And is um, that a, a Google product? Chromium comes from Google. Now, there's, of course, there is confusion in the namespace yep. because while Chromium is the rendering engine and some other administrative stuff in the heart of Google Chrome, and it's now the rendering engine and some administrative stuff in the heart of Microsoft Edge, it is also the name Chromium actually refers to the browser, the Chrome browser, when it's installed on Linux. So it kind of means both things depending on what platform you happen to be using. But for most PC and Mac users, Chromium is really nothing more than the underlying technology in the browser, and it then gets wrapped in something else. If it comes from Google, it gets wrapped into this thing called Chrome. And if it comes from Microsoft, it gets wrapped into this thing called Microsoft Edge. So the, and of course, as I understand it, Chromium, the rendering engine, the guts, is open source. So it's a project that um, anybody can contribute to. Now, normally, since it originated at Google, you would think that Google would have final say on what goes on in there. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But my understanding is that Microsoft has, in fact, already contributed to that project and made Chromium, the rendering engine, better. They've added some features that had been missing, um, even in Google Chrome. Google Chrome will benefit from that because they're built on Chromium, so they would eventually pick up those changes as well. But Microsoft Edge is getting those as well. So the, I, from my perspective, uh, for what I've seen, and like I said, I've been using it for about a week now, uh, is that it is Google Chrome. All my extensions work, both from the Microsoft Store and from the Google Chrome, from the Google Store. Uh, any that was my next that, question. <laughs> yep, any extensions that work there. And so while some of the extensions I've been able to find in the Microsoft Store, a couple I haven't, and I just pop over to the Google Chrome Store, and it just acts like you're in, in, in Chrome. Uh, it's actually very seamless, and, and it, I, can't, I can't point at numbers for this, but one of the things I do when I'm running my machine is I've got uh, Process Explorer sitting off on a, um, in a window. And I have sort of a sense for how much memory is being used by my machine um, as I'm using it throughout the day. Google Chrome has a, has a reputation for using uh, a lot of memory. My sense is that Edge, Chromium-based Edge, is using less, which I find interesting at least. Uh, in a lot of ways, it then can be a fully functional replacement for Google Chrome that uses less memory. So anyway, I'm enthused. I think it's actually really interesting that they've done this. This is quite the departure from Microsoft to actually pick up somebody else's technology. It's exactly the right choice in my experience, in my uh, opinion. Uh, Edge was a mistake and it was, you know, four years wasted if you want to, if you really want to get blunt about it. But um, I think now once this starts rolling out uh, to the masses, people will be very, very pleased. I also understand that uh, Edge may end up getting removed from Windows itself uh, in the sense that you'll now go to the Microsoft Store and get it, and it'll be on its own update cycle separate from Windows Update for, Microsoft, for Windows itself. Makes sense. Uh, which also you know, further decouples it a little bit from some of the other things people are sensitive about, but um, really makes it its own standalone um, nifty browser. So, oh, and, and, Gary... You'll, you'll love this. I know what you're going to say. 
(laughs) (laughs) It's available on your Mac. Yes, yes, it is. Um, Um, It's actually supposedly available on Mac, um, iPhones, or iOS, and uh, Android as well. I fired it up on my Android. It's a browser. It's fine. I don't don't really stretch the browser on my phone. Um, And supposedly the Linux, Linux version is also in the wings. So, as you know, I have Windows 10 now. Uh, um, do I have it, or do I have to get a beta version, or how does that work? You do have to go get it. Um, and like I said, the, the links are in the show notes. Okay. The, um, it is something that you just download and install, and when you install it, it will, in fact, replace the version of Edge that's on your machine. Okay. Uh, the biggest visual indicator is that a while back they announced it was going to have a new icon, you'll have the new icon. It's a new sexier icon. Yeah, because the the current one really is very reminiscent of IE. Exactly, yep. What I find fascinating is that IE is still there. When they're talking about removing Edge potentially from the operating system, I'm surprised they haven't really removed IE from the operating system. There are two problems. One is that there are still, believe it or not, still websites that will only work with IE. And um, those websites, that should be shot. They should be. And at some point they um. probably will be. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing, of course, is that components that IE uses, which I'm presuming um, either IE uses, maybe Edge doesn't use them anymore, but some of the components built into IE are actually used by other applications in the system. So there's really no complete removal of IE. There's also some really interesting relationships here with how the software engines work because Chromium uh, is has part of it, or was based on something called Blink, the Blink browser engine originally, or at least back many years ago, which was a fork of WebKit. <laughs> WebKit is what, what is used in Safari. It all goes back to Netscape. So, it does. It actually does. <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I think it actually may, that may be the one. I'm looking now, and it's like, so there are re- relationships between the code in Safari and Edge and Chrome. Uh, I'm not sure what those are. Some of those have been forked, which means that they will never, you know, there's a separate piece of code now that will never be related again to, you know, what was originally there. But uh, Firefox may be the only one that may be out by itself. I don't just, Firefox, I don't think uses WebKit. I think they, they use the Mozilla yeah, engine. I was going to say, I think, yeah. I think they use the Mozilla engine. And honestly, I think that's the one that traces back to Netscape. Right. So, so now instead of having a Mozilla engine, an Internet Explorer engine, and this WebKit engine that was Chrome and Safari, we now have mostly kind of this WebKit blink Chromium thing. And, and then we have Mozilla just by itself with Firefox. Yep. So, yep. interesting. Interesting times. So, what, it's funny. A lot of people used to say that um, Edge's primary purpose was to uh, fire up and download Chrome. And <laughs> right. now, uh, it's very possible that Chrome, Chrome has this huge market share. Like, they've got over half the browser market. Um, it may even be, like, closer to 60%. Um, it's very possible that this one change by Microsoft, this one strategic direction change, uh, could start eating into that because there will, be, will. there will be people that honestly don't care um, if Edge will do everything they need and it's already there because it may very well be pre-installed in you know, the next edition of Windows, then um, why bother with Chrome? Yeah. yeah, and especially there's some backlash now because people know Chrome is Google and there's this uh, privacy issue that more of the general public is becoming aware of. 
So there's, I think a lot of the growth of Chrome was people had no reason not to use it. You know, why not? It seems to work. It's fast. It's all this. But now suddenly people have found a reason maybe not to use it. And an alternative, because Edge does claim on its site here, you know, provides all these privacy tools and stuff like that. Well, and it used to be that Microsoft was, you know, the boogeyman. It was Mm -hmm. the, the big evil corporation. And I think that's gone away quite a bit. And now Google and, of course, Facebook have that moniker. So... I, th- I think it's partly just a way to get the hell away from Google. It might be, although I, th- I think f- in a lot of ways, I think that that ship has probably already sailed. The people are, that are really concerned about Google have moved over to Mozilla Firefox because Firefox yeah. hmm. has really been promoting the privacy aspect of it. Um, they've, they've really been doing it. They've built in um, you know, tracking block- blockers and so forth in most recent versions. So I think people that are aware enough of the issue to, to care uh, have probably already moved. But um, nonetheless, I think that it it certainly plays to the inertia audience. Uh, so, you know, if 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 Edge is going to work like Chrome, why do I need Chrome? Uh, I think is, is potentially the, the question that a lot of people will be asking. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm, you know, good on Microsoft. I think they did it right. Finally. Only took them four years. Or 24 years, depending on how you look at it. 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gary, what did you bring us today? So, so this is kind of related because it's, it's something to do with browsers, but also uh, to do with privacy in general. So you guys know how like Apple's really been marketing along this whole like we're the company company that cares about your privacy, right? Well, okay, if you say yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean you know they have commercials, you know we, uh, that just are about privacy. A lot of their online stuff is like you know we you know, iOS and macOS and Safari web browser and all that are all about privacy. That's right. I've seen the ads. Your data belongs to you. Yeah, data belongs to you, all of that. And and also Apple's the one getting out there, you know, when there's a a government kind of issue going on, you know, Google can't say too much because they rely on all this information uh, for their ads. You know, they they can't really be too privacy concerned. So they can't get out there on the side of pro-privacy because they can't be pro-privacy. Their revenue stream would kind of dry up if they did. Apple doesn't have that problem because they don't have an advertising, uh, you know, element to the Apple empire. Uh, so they don't care about all of the stuff that Google and Facebook care about. They don't care your location. They don't care about your interests or anything. They just want you to buy their products. And they don't have, if they had that information about you, they have no way to actually benefit from it. So it's easy for Apple to care about your privacy because it doesn't matter. It would be hard for Google <laughs> to care about your privacy because it would adversely affect them. So on, in starting with iOS 13, there was a, a change. Apple does all these changes uh, in each operating system, a little extra privacy. And a big change that happened with iOS 13 was that instead of just getting a little notification when an app wants to know your location, saying, hey, is it okay if this app knows your location? And then you have to say yes or no. Um, it, it works differently now because before people would say, well, I guess so. You know, this app needs to know my location to work. So yes. And then that's it. For years, you have that app installed and it knows where you are. Well, now there are three options. First of all, one is that it can know my location. Another is it can know my location, but only when I'm using it. <laughs> and another mm-hmm. is, okay, it can know my location, but just right now, you know, it wants my location now to show me, say, a map I asked for nearby 
coffee houses and it said, can I have your location? And you could say, yes, just this one time. Next time you need it, you got to ask me again. And the change, the big change was that iOS 13 periodically asks you again. So even if you say, oh, it's cool, you can know my location, you get these alerts, and I see them all the time, that say, hey, this app has been using your location. Do you want that to continue? And um, usually I'm um, yes, because there's a certain app that uh, it's important for it to know my location. So I say yes, but it is interesting because a lot of people, then it gives them that second chance to say no. And with that, there's been a huge drop in the number of apps that have been able to gather this information. Uh, so uh, with iOS 13 now, 75% of uh, iOS users are already on iOS 13 because Apple really pushes their updates. Um, and uh, it used to be that opt-in rates for location, according to one source, were about 100%. You know, if an app needed a location, it had your location. Now that those rates have dropped to 50% because you know iOS is pretty pretty big player in the mobile space. I mean, Android's still, I think, a little bit bigger, but iOS is big enough to really kill those rates, which means that advertisers that want to send you location-based ads uh, are no longer able to. It's becoming very unreliable. They they can't go and say, well, send this ad to all the people in California. Uh, and now it's like, well, we can send it to a bunch of people in California, but not all of them because there's a lot of them. We have no idea where they are. And, um, and it's having an effect on the advertising industry. So Apple's plan to actually make things more private does actually seem to be having that desired effect in the last few months, uh, which is good news. Isn't this their own ad market, though, that they're affecting? Apple's? Or yeah. Apple doesn't have an ad market. Uh, don't they for, like, mobile games and that kind of stuff? Nope. They had a product for a while. And 2015, I think it was 15, they got rid of it. So they, it was an experiment for a while. I actually used it for my games, but then they got rid of it. And they haven't had that for a long time. So most of the ads that you see in apps on iOS are either Google's AdMob or some other system. Apple has no horse in that race. So they don't care, <laughs> um, which is uh, why they've been able to do this. Yeah. Interesting. So, so this is great because you wonder, like, when when companies like Apple do this kind of thing, like, say, we're going to make it, make the system more privacy based. Does it really work? And the answer seems to be yes. And advertisers now are doing things like uh, this article that we'll link to uh, says, you know, sales pitches uh, for marketing are less and less about like, oh, we'll just show ads to mobile phone users in locations. It's like, well, they can't really do much of that anymore. So they have to kind of shift their strategy. I have to wonder how many of them are going to shift their technology to try and work around the issue. Well, it's funny you should mention that <laughs> because that's exactly kind of what's happening. So Apple's got a lot of other stuff because there's other privacy things besides location. There's information identifying you, like what you like, you know, what you've been searching for, you know, what type of apps you have installed, all this other private information. And Apple has a bunch of stuff in there, uh, particularly in the Safari browser, uh, to thwart that, to, to basically say, oh, you know, nope, you can't, you can't know this information. This is secure information. Um, and preventing apps from basically knowing who you are. So when you go to a website, uh, the uh, different websites would be able to identify you 
by previous websites you've been to. So maybe you're at a web travel website looking for information about traveling, say to France, and then you end up at a completely different website, and that website's ads actually tell you things like, "Hey, here's cheap flights to France or things to do while in France," and you're like, "Well, that's kind of creepy because why is this? Why does this website know that I was looking at this other website to find out this stuff?" And so Apple started doing these things to prevent that from happening. And what's, what's happening is that, uh, well, what could be happening is that they're trying to get more clever about identifying you. It's called fingerprinting, right? Getting your fingerprint, knowing who you are. Apple decided to prevent certain things from happening. So when you're at, say, website B, website B doesn't know you've been to website A. So it can't advertise to you based on that piece of information. But in doing so, it actually creates a fingerprint because imagine hmm. if you go to websites A through Z, right? And you get to website Z and website Z knows that you've been websites A through Y. Okay. So it's you've been to the 25 websites. Now you're to this 26th website and it could tell a lot of things about you based on those 25 websites, A through Y that you've been to. Apple says, nope, you can't know that. So what happens is that stuff is blocked. Well, the blocking itself creates a fingerprint. So you get to website Z, and website Z says, well, I'm going to see out of these hundreds of websites which ones you've been to. Oh, interesting. These 10 seem to be blocked. You must have been to them <laughs> or something kind of similar to that. It's, you know, it's using basically the fact that that information isn't there to kind of figure out where you've been and identify who you are because it becomes unique to you. Like, you know, the things that have been blocked for you are different than everybody else. So as you go from site to site, it knows who you are. And this is exactly what Apple didn't want to happen, but it's kind of a weird side effect of security. The more security you put on, the more unique you become as a user as you browse the internet. And then they can identify who, who you are by your security. Um, it's and interesting. It was, yeah, it was actually Google that discovered this, which is weird. So, you know, Google's got all these different parts and a research part of Google actually discovered that you could use this, these privacy blocking things to fingerprint a user. And that's why I say it's kind of unclear as to whether they're actually doing this, because I kind of doubt that most advertising agencies or companies that do this are actually that smart. I, I believe the researchers at Google are that smart to figure this out. but I regularly see ads that are broken all over the internet. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if they can't even get these ads to serve right, uh, what makes you think they're going to do this really high-level fingerprinting? Well, and the average company probably can't, but there are yeah. always pretty high-tech, yeah. um, savvy people out there that you don't want to get this, and they're the ones that have the capability. Right. There's well, and there's the the advertising networks. I mean, I'm convinced that some of the bigger advertising networks absolutely have this capability. Whether they choose to employ it, of course, is another matter. But they've certainly got the smart people on there that will that will um, you know you know know about this. It reminds me also of a different website uh, called miunique.org, mm -hmm. and again, we'll throw that in the uh, show notes. And it does essentially the same kind of thing based on 
all of the normal things that your browser provides to a website. So for example, um, I went there a while back and um, it says, am I unique? Yes, you can be tracked because the combination of my browser, my browser version, my Windows, my Windows version, my language, my time zone, and a bunch of other characteristics of my connection to the internet are unique. Hmm. They don't identify me as a person, but they're unique enough that when I go visit a different website, if these two websites check with each other, they can say, hey, I got this fingerprint. Hey, I got that fingerprint too. It's the same guy. Yep. And then it could fit in the first website says, that guy was looking at vacations in France. Yep. And the second website says, oh, thanks. I'll show him information based on that. How convenient. Yes. So this is actually, uh, to the extent that websites or advertisers are using this information, what it sounds like you're saying is that Apple hasn't really created anything unique or new about this, but they've added to the fingerprintable information. Right. And, And they've taken it away because this report came out in December and Apple updated Safari to uh, get rid of that, and they they basically beefed up the security a bit. So some of those pieces of information that were important to that technique no longer go through, mm-hmm. um, and they've got it kind of all spelled out uh, how they do it. It's all very technical, right. but it's um it's interesting if if they had actually blocked resources based on a universal list like said, all this stuff is bad. Oh, the Facebook tracker, that's bad. The, you know, the Google tracker, that's bad. And just blocked it all. Then everybody would look like everybody else. But because they did it using some machine learning and some things unique to each user, it created kind of this fingerprint. So they just put more blocks in place. And I'm sure it's a, it's a, it's a race. It's an arms race, I'm sure. Even with this in place, there'll be the next step. You know, what's okay, now how can users be identified uh, in various ways. And there are certain ways like the basic use of IP addresses that can be used. So they may not be able to tell who you are or where you're located based on your GPS location, but they still have your IP address and they can get that IP address and said, based on this, it's likely you're in the United States and it's pretty likely you're in California. So we can show you an ad based on, you know, for a California service that's you know for residents and you know and that might not be a bad thing because then it becomes more like seeing a billboard you know you see a billboard on the highway at this location and the billboards targeting people that drive through this highway on this location not you specifically just people that are driving through so if using something like an ip address is the way that the uh advertising industry goes then that might be a decent compromise they don't know anything about you except they've placed their ad in this particular location for anybody that happens to come by. Right. They know your neighborhood, just not your address. Yeah. And, and you know, when, when it comes down to it, th- there's a certain level, I think, where there is a nice balance because I don't want to see – I don't like seeing ads, but when I do see ads, I don't want it to be creepy, like really target me specifically based on what I've been searching. But at the same time, I don't want to get ads for – you know, kid stuff or people, you know, it's not my age or, you know, I mean, I don't mind it being somewhat like if I would get a magazines, like a magazine, like Rolling Stone magazine, and it has ads there based on the type of people that buy Rolling Stone magazine, then that's fine. 
I just don't want it to be based on like everything to do with me personally. You know, I would be happier if ads that actually did track me also realized that I already purchased that and I don't need to see another ad. Yeah, yeah. but that's an extremely <laughs> private piece of information. I mean, and, and even if you, even, it, the funny thing is, is that if they did that, if they had a button say, I already own this, so don't show me this ad again. That's then data. That would be, that would be <laughs> an extremely valuable piece because then it would be like, oh, you already own that. Well, then you may want this to go along with it. Yeah, but you know, uh, a lot of that is I get those ads because I've searched for that product on Amazon and then yeah. I bought it from Amazon and then I get ads from Amazon for yep. that product. Yep. They yep. know that I bought it. They think you need another. Yeah, well, they, and they do. Sure. Amazon does a lot of experimentation. I was, I was recently updating my subscribe and save thing on Amazon, right? Just, you know, see what monthly things I could get automatically delivered without having to, you know, specifically order them. And a very odd item came up, something as a, a, a cable or something I ordered. Um, and it came up, do you want this in your subscribe and save? I'm like, why, why would I want a new cable delivered every month for a very specific purpose? And what it is, is it's the algorithm. They have no idea that, you know, their, their servers have no idea what that product really is. Right. And what they do is they throw it up there. And if I, actually would say, oh, yes, give me a new one of those every month. Then a few other people say yes to the same product. And then they would put that on there. Hey, suggest this to people as something that they would want to receive every month. Me like saying, a new no. MacBook. Yeah. Well, I mean, because <laughs> theoretically, like this cable I wanted, I would never want to buy it again ever in my life. I have it. But a charging cable for a phone is something people commonly break. And maybe if enough people say, yeah, just send me a new one every month because I go through the fast, <laughs> then maybe that would get added to subscribe and save. You know, actually, my, my ignoring it was actually a valuable piece of data to Amazon. There's, so this, what we're talking about really is fundamental machine learning. This is it exactly is, how machine exactly, learning works. It was, it was machine. Just, so the, it, those things aren't mistake. And you see people post to Facebook all the time. Look at the ridiculous thing that Facebook right. suggested to me. And it's funny. You can get a laugh out of it, but that's part of machine learning. They have, yep. they can't all be winners. You have to have losers and winners in order yep. for the winners to be winners. Yep. Yep. That's how machine learning is basically throw a lot of mud at the wall so that the next time you only throw half as much mud and, you know, just get, you know, iterate until you're, yes. until you're really, really good. The one thing I was going to point out, you don't have to have a new cable every month. You can say, give me one every other month or every For three, three months. Yeah, yeah right? it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Which, which when you think about it, um, again, it's data for the, for the kind of, of person this is. Maybe it's someone who travels a lot. Maybe it's someone who's constantly losing things on airplane. Maybe they have a, a really um, high stress a socket in their car where they're constantly putting this into and um, Amazon or rather the machine behind the learning would be correlating all of this information about, you know, gosh, he travels a lot and he goes through a lot of cables. Maybe other people who travel a lot would also like to go through sure. a lot of cables. So yeah, it's or, pretty or, crazy. Or, yeah. Or maybe nobody, no household needs 12 rolls of paper towels a month. <laughs> and that's why everybody selects every other month, please. Right. 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 Way too much. Maybe sell six packs. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, I know that Amazon is learning a lot about um, uh, dog accessories, corgi accessories yes. from us and yes. what we do and don't have on our subscribe list. You probably have a code name right there in like the Google or the, uh, the Amazon, uh, you know, pets department. Oh, it's him again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the cor corgi one <laughs> has, has ordered something else that's going to be a hot seller. Yeah. 
So, Randy, what did you bring for us today? I brought LORP. Gesundheit. Yeah. <laughs> so, LORP is actually how they, they pronounce L-O-I-R-P, which is... Um, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> this summer was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And, you know, I, I geek out on space stuff, as you guys know. Um, there were a lot of different pieces of that puzzle to make that mission happen. And one of my favorite was they had these little landers that they soft landed on the moon to check things out. Like what's the terrain like? What is the dust level like? Are we going to just sink into the moon when we land there? Or is it going to be able to, you know, hold up a spacecraft? And one of my absolute favorite pictures from the moon is Apollo 12 astronaut Pete Conrad literally walked over to one of these landers to check it out. And part of their mission was to land near that lander. So, you know, that was successful. Um, But there was another one called the Lunar Orbiter. And what that mission was all about was to use basically you know, spy satellite technology to map the moon so they could choose where they wanted all these missions to land. And they got, they did some amazing things to get these pictures back because this was before digital cameras where you could just, you know, take a picture and then beam it back. They literally took pictures with 70 millimeter film, developed that film in lunar orbit and then use the photo multiplier scanner technology to, to scan those resulting negatives and transmit that back to Earth. And what they did was they checked out different things and found their, their uh, landing locations. And then they moved on because they were really busy. They were trying to get to the moon and back by the end of the decade. And they never actually really processed all of this data to its full resolution. And I've known for years, uh, one of my NASA buddies was very involved in a project to recover all of those tapes. I mean, literally, they back in the 60s, they didn't really have much in the way of hard drives. They recorded their stuff on magnetic tape, two inches wide, um, you know, 11 inches in diameter of a reel, and that would hold 170 megabytes. So all of the tapes from these five missions, it's like 1,500 tapes, and they never processed them fully. So LORP was a project that my buddy and one of his buddies actually kind of pushed NASA into doing. NASA would not fund it, so they started funding it out of their own pocket. And when they released the first picture that they had completely uh, recovered and issued for the first time in super high resolution, people around the world went, wow. So is that embarrassed NASA into doing something about it? Was the first one they uh, uh, released the Earthrise picture? Yes. So the, So, the, the very first Earthrise picture was taken by an unmanned spacecraft, not by Apollo 8. So I was looking at that photo on your on your podcast website um, where you've got a, a copy of it. Yep. And I honestly, when I first saw it, I did a double take is, you know, okay, great. I recognized the first one from years and years ago. Um, gee, 
they must have gone out and retaken it somehow or something, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, it must be a shot from a different, from a different um, expedition. But, yeah, know, it must be that new uh, lunar reconnaissance orbiter. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's it. It's amazing. It's just yeah. amazing the quality that they've recovered from that, that photo. It's, it's stunning. It really is. And I don't even have the full resolution. I've, I've got several different resolutions. I link to one of NASA's that is super, I mean, it's seven and a half megabytes. And it's amazing to click on that and then zoom into 100% on that. NASA calls that the small version. Right, right. Huh. Which is just mind-boggling. I'd love to have, you know, the full, full, full resolution just to right. see what it looks like. Right. But I don't have it. So I, was I, also, I, I made a podcast about this just because as I researched this, I got so geeked out by it <laughs> that, that I did an entire episode just on this concept of what yeah. they did. Yeah, it's really cool. I encourage everybody to go out and, and either listen or read through the transcripts. But more importantly, look, look at the at pictures. The pictures yeah. Look at the pictures. They're awesome. The other picture that just um, kind of blew me away. And for some reason, I mean, I was, you know, all into this, you know, back in the day when this was happening. I did not realize, or I apparently didn't remember, that Apollo 12 actually landed close to Surveyor 3. So yeah. that photograph of, um, of Pete Conrad at Surveyor 3 with the Apollo 12 lamb in the background um, is, oh, wow. That's one of those. It's, it's a mind-boggling picture. It really yep. is. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's been my favorite. And w when I worked at JPL, they had that picture displayed with the scoop that Conrad unbolted from the, from the lander and brought back to Earth. Ah, uh-huh. Huh. And I just love that picture. And I, um, you know, back when I worked there, we didn't have all these great internet sites where you could get stuff like this. I actually had to track down that picture and, and get a, get a copy of that. And now what I, what I can get from Wikipedia is, you know, 10 times better. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I just absolutely geek out about this stuff. And it's amazing what they were able to do with 1960s technology, yet then they threw away that data. They, there was only one copy of that tape or those tapes. And, and Leo, this will you know, raise the hair on the back of your neck. Eek, they eek, they eek. never <laughs> made a backup of these tapes. And it is amazing that when they got to this in the early 2000s, that they were in pristine condition. They, then they had to build tape drives to, to actually read the dang things. Right, right. But uh, they were able to do it and get that data back before it decayed. And yep. that's, that's the story that I'm telling is, is their rescue of this history that we didn't really know we had. A few people knew about it, and they, they wanted to do something about it. But, you know, NASA said, oh, that, that'll cost millions. We're not going to pay for that. Yep. yep. Pretty amazing stuff. Yep, those pictures I'm looking at now, they're pretty amazing. Yeah, so were you uh, even born then, Gary? Come on. <laughs> no, I was not, but only barely. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, you know, this is kind of a, of a plug of my own stuff. We have a blatant self-promotion section later, but um, I just think you got to listen to this if you have any interest in the space race at all. Yep. And if, you, and if you can't listen to it, read it. And if you can't read it, at least look at the pictures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Um, so normally, there's this is a slot where in the future we may throw in some sponsored by stuff. Um, like I said earlier, we're sponsored by Ask Leo and Mac Most, and this is true, and, and uh, free printables. Um, I did want to throw a shout out to a different podcast that I've started listening to over the last month or so. So this is not any kind of sponsorship by any stretch. Um, it's just um, I wanted to acknowledge that a lot of the ideas for some of the things we're doing here on TEH um, are coming from a podcast called Smashing Security. They are out of Britain. They talk about security each week. They have a lot of fun doing it. Um, and it's just something that um, I enjoyed. I enjoy listening to. It's one of the, the few podcasts in my busy day that I'll actually take the time to make sure I listen to uh, when it comes out. So um, I'll just throw a quick, a quick shout out to them because uh, they've inspired us a little bit. And now we will uh, uh, see, move on. So off topic stuff, right? We, we yeah. have, there's, there's more to our lives than technology, believe it or not. Um, in my case, besides Corgis, there's also Star Trek. And um, one of the things that has caused a lot of um, buzz in the uh, Star Trek universe, so to speak, is the premiere of the show Star Trek Picard. Um, it is the return of uh, Captain, or in this case, Admiral, or now retired, Jean-Luc Picard, uh, 20 some odd years after leaving uh, his, his role as Captain of the Enterprise. And um, it basically follows where life has taken him and the adventure he's about to set up on. There's one episode that's been released so far. So I have exact, uh, one data point. And I find the show incredibly promising. Um, I just love seeing uh, the characters again. Uh, they brought a lot of iconic characters back from the original episode from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation um, and a couple of the other uh, Star Trek shows. Um, for, the, uh, uh, for the pedants among us, um, apparently there's like a tremendous amount of callback and reference to uh, associated Star Trek canon. It's not, not the kind of a watcher I am. I, I watch these things to enjoy them and, and to, and to um, escape a little bit and to reconnect with the characters that, I, that I've known and grown to, uh, grown to appreciate over the years. But uh, Star Trek Picard is, is, is looking good. Um, it's apparently coming out every Thursday um, on CBS All Access, which is a, a streaming service uh, from CBS who owns uh, the Star Trek uh, universe right now. And um, like I said, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, it's gotten fairly good reviews so far, as with all things science fiction, especially in this kind of a world. Um, you know, there, of course, are going to be the haters out there. But um, uh, in general, I think it's gotten some really good reviews, and it's gotten one more from me. I, I enjoyed it. Well, I've got a book recommendation. Um, and it's... Uh, you know, Walter Isaacson, he's that guy that writes all his biographies. He wrote the Steve Jobs pun. He's written Einstein and Franklin and all that. He was apparently working on a book about computers and the internet when the Steve Jobs project interrupted him and he finished it and he published it. It's several years old now at this point, but it's called The Innovators. And it is basically the history of computers, um, mostly about the people involved with a central theme that collaboration was always important. He starts way back with uh, one of my favorites and kind of the, the founder of my profession, 
uh, Ada Lovelace or Loveless as the audiobook reader pronounces it. Um, mm. And um, uh, she, of course, uh, worked with Charles Babbage on his theoretical, never really built first computer. Um, and she came up with programming stuff. You know, she was the first programmer, first computer scientist, and uh, then jumps to uh, the next time that humans tried to build computers, which was in the early part of the 20th century, mechanical kinds of computers. And then uh, World War II with Turing and the uh, Americans that worked on various projects to build ENIAC and such um, transistors, microchips, microprocessors, the start of networking, the internet, all the people involved in basically creating all this stuff and tells it in a great way because it's all about the people and the stories about, you know, where these people came from and what they, you know, their early lives were like that led them to become pioneers in computers and also how they work together to create things. Um, I knew a lot of it. But I also didn't know some parts of it, which is incredible because I've read so many books on this subject that learning some some of the stuff was like I never knew about that event or that person or um, that breakthrough that led to this other breakthrough and that kind of thing. Um, so great book, easy read. He's he's a great writer, and uh, it'll get, it gives you a nice overview. Like he, I don't think he really misses pretty much anybody um, that was part of developing computers and the internet. Is there uh, much overlap with the Jobs book? A, a little bit. I mean, Steve Jobs is, uh, you know, a character, Wozniak and Jobs, are, but it's just one chapter, one part of, you know, the homebrew and uh, homebrew club and the founding of uh, Apple and, um, and things like that. A lot of interesting things. You know, there are a lot of things in the uh, history of computers where things didn't go where most of the people thought. You know, these inventors would create these computers and think that, okay, the future is these big mainframes and terminals and all of that. And then another group came along and said, nope, future is going to be personal computers. You know, and some people say, okay, networking, it's all about connecting universities and the Department of Defense. <laughs> and other people said, nope, it's going to be commercial. Um, interesting uh, things about that. I'm even reading, I'm almost finished the book and I'm reading about the development of the web. And I thought I knew everything about that as well. And it turns out I didn't, uh, that the original web as envisioned by Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the web uh, was supposed to be much more collaborative as in imagine being in your web browser now browsing to a website and being able to edit that website, like the actual website. Like Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. Or well, like Wikipedia, but imagine being able to do that with any website like Amazon or he didn't Facebook know people very well. Anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So there was, there was kind of that there were other visions for it as well. And uh, you know, again, it was collaborative. The, his vision for it got things off the ground, other people's visions directed it one way or the other and changed things um, to get what we, what we have today. I believe it was Isaacson's Da Vinci book that I read last year mm. and um, highly recommended. Uh, da Vinci is um, also just an amazing person in and of itself and someone that I, uh, I kind of take as one of my role models just because of his, um, um, he was the original Renaissance man in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, really. And uh, so, yeah, good, good writer, lots of good, good meat to the books. Um, so I can see that, that the innovators would also be an interesting one. I'll have to throw it on my list. Yeah, me too. Randy, 
So now for something completely different. Um, a few years ago, my wife and I, we, we volunteer with our local EMS agency. We're, we're volunteer medics. And there was a, what we call a frequent flyer, somebody who has an actual medical problem that ends up needing to go to the ER a lot, sometimes in really serious situations. And this woman had a, had a real medical problem, which I'm not going to talk about, but we got to realize that she had some young kids. And Kit and I, my wife, um, quote unquote, adopted these kids. We kind of just looked out for them. Uh, her, her, their mother ended up being in the hospital for the almost an entire year uh, over in Denver. So you know, it was even difficult for the kids to visit her. And we just, you know, got them some birthday presents or Christmas presents or, you know, did, did some things with them just so they'd have some stable um, people in their lives. And eventually mom died and grandma is taking care of them. They still live here. Uh, right now they're um, 14 years old, uh, a male and female twin or twins and an older sister who's 16. And it suddenly occurred to me that kids that age have an enormous potential that us adults don't have. And that potential is time. And so I actually um, introduced them to the concept of compound interest. So I had the kids come up and do a little bit of work around the house. And when they were done, I said, I'm going to give you guys a choice. I'm going to give you 50 bucks each for what you did today. Or your choice, I'll give you $2,693.91 each. And of course, they were very intrigued. And the idea is that if they have uh, wages that are on their tax forms, and you know, kids don't usually do tax forms, but if you do it anyway, and they have some income on there, then you can make a Roth IRA and contribute up to the amount they earn or whatever the maximum is, which kids aren't likely to get to. And they'll never be taxed on that money again because it's a Roth. They'll pay very little taxes on their income because they don't make much. And they're not going to touch that money for 50 years. So 50 bucks and never contribute another penny in that comes up to almost $2,700 in 50 years, which is about when they're going to start thinking about retiring. And I was gleeful that all three of the kids, even though they're pretty young, chose the long-term delayed gratification. Cool. They saw it. They understood it. And, um, and now they're starting to think about what other work they can do to make more money and to put it into a Roth. And I talked to my financial guy, you know, he's one of these people that normally you can't get in there without something like $250,000. And I said, would you be willing to take these kids on, even though they're not going to have anywhere near your minimum for years, if ever. And he said, not only yes, but he would waive his fees also. So it, it's just something that I think everybody with kids or grandkids should think about that would really set them up for the future. Yep. Yep. For some reason, what you did reminds me of a psychological experiment called the marshmallow test. Have you ever heard about it? Mm -hmm. They took um, kids and they gave them a choice between one marshmallow now 
or two if they could leave the one marshmallow alone. Yeah. And, you know, it really, apparently it was like a, a very significant indicator as to their future success as to whether or not they were able to understand and accept the delayed gratification of the greater amount. Yeah, strangely enough, dogs fail that test every single time. Every <laughs> single time. Every time, yes. every single one. <laughs> I've, I've run that experiment enough to know. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the other thing I was going to mention is <clears throat> in the, along that same line, one of the things that we've done for some of the um, young family members that we've adopted, uh, adopted in the, in the figurative sense, um, 529 plans. Basically, mm -hmm, yeah. that's the education plan mm -hmm. that allows you to squirrel away money now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's got all kinds of interesting preferential treatment. But depending on the state you're in or the plan you happen to choose, um, it's another way to help uh, these kids uh, prepare for being able to afford secondary education uh, after they graduate high school. And it's not limited to universities. It can be trade schools and any number of different things. And it can include housing associated with the schooling and so forth. But yeah, it's another way to, to uh, set something up for kids that will uh, hopefully further stack the deck towards their success in the future. And I know we're I know we're starting to run a bit long here, but I just want to. There is there is no long. Right? There, yeah. There's no there's no time limit. It's an hour ish. The, the, the interesting thing about a five twenty nine is you know people talk a lot about college debt and having to pay off these loans after graduating college. A five twenty nine is the opposite of exactly. that. Yep. I am I uh, I'm going to be reaping the benefits of five twenty nine, and it occurs to me it's basically like the opposite of a loan in that I put away a far smaller amount starting a while ago. And that has not only, uh, you know, sat there and I put more and more into it, but has gained because, you know, it's been invested in various funds and such. So it is actually multiplied and then will be used for tuition for college. And the actual amount of cash I put in it has been much smaller than what tuition is going to be. And I think the it's opposite, about time you went to college, Gary. Yeah, it's about time. The The opposite would be true if it was debt. If it was yes. loans, then the actual amount of cash to pay for it would be much more than tuition. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's, if you're looking for a way to beat the system, that's the way to beat the system. Put away for your retirement, put away for college, whatever it is, and actually yeah. turn the tables on that whole interest thing and be a benefit, you know, have it be a benefit to you rather than a detriment. S saving is better than borrowing. Yeah, saving with interest. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, anyway. even even without interest, saving is still better than borrowing. Yeah. But yes, yes. But Very then cool. when you have compound interest, yeah, then it's awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's awesome. All righty. Blatant self-promotion. We get to talk about ourselves. Um, I, I just wanted to highlight one article that I, I republished this week about Microsoft Office 365. That's Microsoft's subscription service. A lot of people balk and stop listening when they hear subscription. It's incredibly affordable. And in fact, it is um, uh, my article has been updated by readers in the comments to point out that it's actually more affordable and gets you more than even I thought it did. So check that out. That's askleo.com slash 3440. Gary. I've got a video today. You just find it by going, uh, not today, but this week. If you, if you go to macmost.com, it's near the top. And it's on using emoji. Now, you guys probably, or maybe not, use emoji when you're doing text messages or maybe emails. 
right? A little smiley face. A little, I even put an emoji in our show notes tonight. I'm so proud of myself. Poop emoji <laughs> here and there. But a lot of people don't ever think that you could use emoji for more than that. So they're always blown away. Sometimes people see my screen and notice, hey, how did you get those icons in your bookmarks at the top of the browser? Like those aren't icons. Those are emoji. I put them there to make the bookmarks stand out. How about file names? You could put emoji in file names. I assume you could do it on Windows. I mean, you could do it on Mac. You could put it in folder names to make the folders stand out. So I came up with 13 alternate ways to use emoji on your Mac that aren't using them simply in messages or email. I like it. it. Ready? I, I don't think I can do any better than my podcast this week. <laughs> Go to the thing. Um, this is true.com slash podcast 59. Of course, we'll have a link on the show notes too, but uh, uh, listen to it, read it, or at least look at the pretty pictures. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of show notes, hey, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh84, actually. No, nope, 83. 83. Okay, good. I just want to make sure. Want to make sure we're sending people to the right place. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. Randy, where should people look for you online? My main place is thisistrue.com. You can find Gar- or find me at askleo.com. Gary, do you have a preference? Uh, MacMost.com. That ought to wrap it up for us this week. Yeah. Thanks for coming back. I hope you didn't miss us too much. Thanks for listening, and we will see you here again next week. Bye. So Microsoft's making a good browser now. Right, right, right. <laughs> what, did they get the code from Google? <laughs> and you'd be like, well, actually, I was like, I knew it.